What if Jesus really meant that we should love our actual neighbors? Imagine the difference you could make in your neighborhood if you got to know your neighbors better. Imagine the difference you could make in your community if you partnered with others who had a desire to become better neighbors. Imagine the difference it could make in our cities if local churches were working together to make this a reality. Good morning, everyone. Great to be back with you. Certainly missed my time away, but I am so excited about the series we are doing. We are in week five of Won't You Be My Neighbor? We just want to welcome those who are watching online as well. I just go back to the first week when we talked about how being a good neighbor is different than being a good Samaritan. Being a good neighbor is more than just one simple random act of kindness. Being a neighbor means crossing the street, crossing the aisle, getting to know someone who sits in a different section than you. On Pentecost Sunday, we talked about how it was like God who crossed the street and allowed some simple Galileans to speak in different languages of all those visiting Jerusalem for Pentecost where people from different countries heard their own language declaring the praises of God. It was just like God saying, won't you be my neighbor? Two weeks ago, Pastor Todd challenged us to change the narrative, to change our narrative of how God sees us. How does God see you? How does God view you? Because that's important so we can love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And then last week, Pastor Jamal encouraged and challenged us to uh, tell the good news over a good meal. Tell the good news over a good meal and how important our tables are. Well, today I want to talk about creating space to engage our neighbors. Creating space. Now, when you came to church this morning, obviously you probably saw something different out front. You're wondering what's going on. And if you're not on social media, maybe you're not aware of. But today after church, we're going to try. My goal is to end early to create space so that you get to know one another better over Broadway Donuts. Have you ever had donuts from Broadway up here? Broadway Street Donuts. They are fabulous. We have like a hundred donuts coming in. We have the coffee makers back. You have juice. We have tables set up there. You got your name tags on. So we're going to create space to have donut ministry after church. Now, if you like things that are free, you may want to stay for the second service because we have the ice cream truck coming. So uh, we're just creating space to be good neighbors. Over the past two weeks, the events of the past two weekends for me has caused me to reflect upon a lot that you're going to hear about. Two weeks ago, I was in Richmond, Virginia because I was able to help officiate at my great-nephew's wedding. Great-nephew. And as I'm there enjoying the festivities of that wedding, I realized that I hadn't seen my one sister for over two years. And I hadn't seen my other sister for over a year and a half. 
And there was a great nephew that I never met before, that it's two years old. And it was just great to be with my sisters, who I haven't seen for a while, and their children, and there's children, children. And it just made me realize how important family is, as well as how quick time flies. And then, of course, last weekend on Sunday, Heather and I celebrated 40 years of marriage. Talk about time flying. <laughs> Leah told me, my granddaughter told me, Tito, you look like a beetle when you got married. And I don't know if that was a compliment or if she meant a beetle or a bug or if she meant the Beatles. And I never made it famous. But, um, yeah, your faith, thank you. Well, anyway, we went to Bucks County, and I took her to Ringing Rocks. If you've never been to Ringing Rocks, it's this, the, these rocks that have iron in them. If you hit with a hammer, they actually ring. They make noise. And that's right across the river from Milford. And then we crossed over the Delaware River into Milford. And we lived right outside of Milford uh, when we first got married. And I said, let's go try to find the little apartment we, we lived in. So uh, we actually lived in Baptist Town. And off of Hog Hollow Road, our, our address was 195 Hog Hollow Road. And we went back into the woods and we found this little apartment that was over a two-car garage that we rented for $200 a month. Can someone say amen, amen for that? $200 a month. And we went back there and saw it, took a picture of it. And then we went back to visit the church where we first attended out when we were married. It was called Baptist Town Assembly of God. That sounds like a sort of oxymoron, Baptist Town Assembly of God. I don't know why they named it, but that's where it did. And then we went to Clinton because we, we got married in Clinton at the Clinton Presbyterian Church. And then uh, our reception was at the mill, the Red Mill in Clinton. And that's across the river from the mill and just took a recapture of that. And just had a great time reflecting upon God's faithfulness in our lives over 40 years. In reflecting upon that, I... It, if I were to do a survey this morning, if I were to do a survey of all of you as well as those who are joining online, and I were to ask the question, what one thing do you wish you have more of? What's one thing that you wish you had more of? And, and let's take the Godhead out of it, because we all want more of God. We all want more of the Holy Spirit. We all need more of Jesus. So, I, I mean, that would be obviously, but what would you say, what's one thing? Thing that you wish you had more of. And I would imagine that the top two answers would be time, and the others who didn't want to yell it out would be money. Time. Because time passes so quick. You know, 24 hours in one day just doesn't seem enough to get everything done that we need to get done. We just want more time. In fact, there may be some of you right now who are thinking about something you didn't get done this weekend, and you're still thinking about when you're going to get it done and how you're going to get it done. And then there's money. Because there's always, the list is always growing of needs and wants. Where the budget doesn't allow for it. But here's something different that money offers other than time. Money we can do something about. You can go get a second job. You can get a side job. 
You can um, invest your money and hopefully watch it grow in this economy. But time is something you can't get more of. There's only 24 hours in a day. And you have what you have. And here's the hardest part about time. Is none of us really know how much we have. William Penn said this. Time is what we want most, but what we use worse. Time is what we want most, but what we use worse. And you're probably wondering, okay, how does all this deal with being a good neighbor? I am one who values the Great Commission. The Great Commission of going into all the world making disciples of all nations, making disciples of all people. And that just doesn't mean in Japan, in Mexico, in Australia, in Europe. That means in our own neighborhood, making disciples of your neighbors. And I don't see this just as a commandment. I see this as a mandate. And if we are going to value the Great Commission and realize the mandate of the Great Commission, then we have to create space. We have to create time to build relationships so that we can share the good news of Jesus Christ with our neighbors. One of the biggest obstacles that we face in taking the Great Commission seriously is this. Pastor, I'm just too busy. I don't have time. It's okay for me to come and put my money in the missions offering so that those missionaries can reach this world for Jesus. But for me to take time to know people whom I work with and people whom I live next to, Pastor, life is busy. I just don't have time. And what we're really saying is we value the Great Commission, but do we really? Last week, Pastor Jamal preached from Luke chapter 14 about people who were invited to a banquet and they started to make excuses. I've I bought a piece of property. I bought five yoke of oxen. I just got married. And they made excuses. You know what they were basically saying? I don't have time. They didn't have time to go to the banquet. And just like they don't have time to go to the banquet, we don't have time to invite people to the banquet. Meanwhile, there's a harvest that's rotting in the fields. We need to incorporate in our life time. Over the past two weeks, I've been reading the Gospel of Luke. And I don't know if you're like me, but every time you read, you always get something different. And this is what, I guess, in my stage of life, this is what I've noticed this time in reading the book of Luke. And I realize it's only a snippet 
of the life of Jesus. It's only a part, small part of his life that we get in the Gospels. But as I read, this is what I'm thinking about. Jesus got so much done, but he never seemed like he was in a hurry. Did you ever mention one time when you read about when Jesus is in a hurry? He always had time to talk to people. In Luke chapter 5, he's in a house and it's crowded. People are standing on the outside. And he's just sharing with them. And all of a sudden, as he's talking to them, all of a sudden he hears a little commotion. And he looks up and hears a man being lowered from the ceiling where they've dug a hole. I'm going to speak about more of that next week on Father's Day. Now, Jesus doesn't get upset. He doesn't get aggravated with the interruption. He, what, what, are you, what in the world are you doing? But he engages that man in conversation. He forgives his sins. He heals them. And the man that was lowered down through a ceiling in front of Jesus, who couldn't walk, now walks out of that house. And then if you go a couple more chapters in Luke chapter 8, we see the humanity of Jesus where he's tired and is sleeping. He's sleeping in a boat. And there's this storm that breaks out and the disciples think they're going to drown. And Jesus is just sleeping. Pretty soon they wake up Jesus and he doesn't say, guys, don't bother me, I'm sleeping. But he gets up. Hey guys, what's wrong? Don't you care if we're going to drown? You guys aren't going to drown. Wind, be still. And the sea just calms. And at the end of chapter 8, read about how Jesus has an encounter with a synagogue ruler named Jairus. And Jairus comes and says, my only daughter, my 12-year-old daughter is coming. Come, you, you need to pray for her. Come, master, come, teacher. Come to my house and pray for my 12-year-old daughter. She's dying. And listen, it, it doesn't get, there, there's not an emergency almost more than that. And Jesus is on his way. And as Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house to pray for this 12-year-old daughter who's dying, all of a sudden he says, hey, who touched me? Master, what do you mean who touched you? Somebody touched me. I, I felt power go out of me. And here was a woman who's had an issue with bleeding for 12 years, touches Jesus. And Jesus, in the midst of an emergency, stops and engages her in conversation. He never seems rattled. He, he never seems as, as if... He's caught off guard. He never loses his temper. But he uses each occasion as a golden opportunity to teach something important or to do a miracle. Now turn your Bibles to Psalms 90. When I say Psalms, Usually you associate the Psalms with David, the psalmist. But Psalms 90 is one of those Psalms that's not attributed to David. It's attributed to Moses. Whoa, wait, what do you mean, Pastor? 
There is a psalm that's attributed to David. It's the only psalm that's attributed to David. Some call it David's song or some call it David's prayer. And in this prayer of Psalm 90, Moses asks God to help me manage my time. Lord, help me to manage my time. Now, as I've always said, context, context, context. You have to understand the context of, uh, of Psalms 90. You have to understand the context of this prayer in order to appreciate what Moses is asking. It's thought that the time frame of this prayer that's found in Psalms 90 correlates with Numbers chapter 20. Now let me just spare you the time of looking back at chapter 20 of Numbers, but let me tell you what's going on in Moses' life at this time. In Numbers chapter 20, it opens up with his sister dying, Miriam. Miriam dies. Then there's this portion of the children of Israel in the wilderness, and they have no water, Moses just gets frustrated, strikes the rock with his staff, water pours out, and it's the one thing that keeps him out of entering the promised land. But if you know your Bible well, in the New Testament, in the Mount Transfiguration, who appears there in the promised land? Moses. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God? Come on, somebody. He strikes the rock with his staff. Water pours out. And it's that one incident that God says, listen, because of your anger, I'm going to keep you from allowing to enter the promised land. And then the end of chapter 20, his brother Aaron dies. So you have the death of his sister. You have the anger of Moses. And then you have the death of his brother. Woohoo! And Psalms 90, his prayer, begins, the first two verses of Psalms 90 deals with the eternity of God. God is an eternal God. The next four verses deals with man's mortality, how we are mortal, how we're going to die. The next five verses deal with the, just of a, the righteousness and the justice of God. God's anger, his justice, his righteousness. And as you read those five verses there in, in Psalms 90, all of a sudden you realize that someday all of us are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account to God of our life. Did you realize that? All of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And after he realizes God's eternity, man's mortality, and the righteousness and the justice of God, he prays this prayer. Teach us to number our days aright. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. As I was looking at this, teach us to number our days. There are two statements, just two points today. 
two statements that I want to make about this prayer of teaching us to number our days. First, if we are going to value time, we need to first have a sense of perspective. What Moses here is praying, Lord, give me the right attitude in regards to my future. Give me the right attitude in what the future holds. Because Moses rightfully acknowledges he's realistic in this. My days are numbered. Now in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable. He's teaching in a crowd and all of a sudden he's interrupted by someone saying, Teacher, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And Jesus says, watch out for all kinds of greed. And then he goes into a parable of a rich farmer who, who had a fantastic crop, who had no place to store all his harvest. And, and he comes up with this brilliant idea. Instead of giving some to God and some to the neighborhood and some to the community, instead of sharing, he says, I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns so I can store all this so I can sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. But Jesus called him a what? A fool. Because that night his soul was required of him. So we have a parable here where Jesus says it's important to count your days. To make sure that we live with a value of others and God in mind. And not just self. As I was looking at Luke chapter 12 the other day, I, I wrote this in my journal, I said, from this parable, none of us know how many days will be granted to us or granted to us. So I must not waste them on silly, selfish pursuits that have no value. We don't live with an infinite number of days, do we? Do you realize how quick time passes at the wedding they asked all the couples to come up to the dance floor, and I'm like, okay, and I get up there with my wife, I put my hands around her waist, and we move our feet to the music, and the DJ goes, now, if you've been married less than a day, get off the dance floor, and the bride and groom, they, they got off. If you've been married less than a year, and there's like 150 people at this wedding, maybe more, you know, and the dance floor is full. If you've been married less than a year, a couple of other couples. If you've been married less than two years, you know, and if you've been married less than five years, and, you know, I'm thinking, oh, we got a while here, and, you know, I'm just saying, if you've been married less than 10 years, you know, and it's starting to thin out a little bit. If you've been married less than 20 years, and now it's really starting to thin out, and I'm like, you know, if you've been less, married less than 35 years, and I'm looking around, I'm, I, I, hun, there's only five couples left. If you've been married less than 40 years, my sister was married two months after me. She left. There was another couple that left. They were the parents of the bride and groom, of the groom, of the bride, parents of the bride, and they were married in the fall. So they were married less than us. So I'm walking off the floor realizing 
Hun, do you realize there's only two couples here that have been married longer than us? And I started longing to hear the words of Cher. If I could turn back time. Time is a priceless commodity. How do we spend it? Life has been described in different ways. Life is a journey. Life is a battle. Life is a pilgrimage. Life is a race. And no matter what metaphor you use to describe life, we can all agree upon this one thing. If life is a journey, then it has to be completed. If life is a battle, then it has to be finished. If life is a pilgrimage, it has to be concluded. And if life is a race, then we have to win. What's your perspective on life? What's your perspective on the days that are numbered? As I thought about this, I, I said, Lord, I want to invest my time in fulfilling the God assignments that you have for me. I want to invest the time that I have left fulfilling the assignments you have for me. And one of those assignments is making sure that my neighbors know and hear about Jesus Christ. Second, not only a sense of perspective, but a sense of priority. Teach us to number our days. Have you ever let your schedule drive you in a wrong direction? Have you, have you ever been so busy with your schedule that it has guided you in a wrong direction? I was reading this really interesting article that took place uh, numbers of years ago about the transportation, the transportation in Great Britain concerning buses. There were many complaints that were being filed by people that empty buses were passing crowded bus stops. Now, I guess you would complain too if you're waiting for a bus and you see a bus pass that's totally empty. You know, they, they started complaining. And they did a thorough investigation. And after doing a thorough investigation, this is what they concluded with. That the bus drivers wanted to make sure they kept their schedule and that they were on time for the other stops. So they would pass by the crowded bus stops. And that got me thinking. Is our schedule so important that we don't make time for what's really necessary? What's really necessary? Listen, I love schedules, but schedules can no, never override our primary objective. What is our primary objective? Our primary objective is, I'll take it back to week one. Remember when the expert of the law came to Jesus and stood 
and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And with that question, Jesus answered with two questions. What's written in the law and how do you read it? And the expert of the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. What is the primary objective of life is to love God with everything you have. And when your schedule doesn't allow you the time for personal devotions and prayer and reading God's word, there's something that's out of whack with your schedule. You're like empty buses passing crowded bus stops. You gotta stop and you gotta make time for what's important. And that's your relationship with God. And your relationship with others. And Jesus responded, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Is loving God supremely and loving others selfishly a priority in your life? Is that a priority? What I found the interesting, so interesting is this word number in the Hebrew literally means to weigh or to measure. Remember way back when when you used to get a bank statement once a month and you went to the mail, you got your bank statement, you get your checkbook and you balance your checkbook. Now because of online banking, man, every week you can balance your checkbook. Well, this is what it teaches us to number our days, to balance your life. To weigh, to measure. At the end of each day, we should make sure that the skills are tipping. The skills are weighted down with things that have glorified God and ways that you have served others. Every day, when I lay my head on the pillow at night, my prayer is, Lord, may the scale of my life tip to glorifying you. And serving others. John Ottberg, author, pastor, he used to pastor the Menlo Church in California. Last year he had to resign from the church after many years, some family difficulties. I don't need to get into that, but uh, he, he wrote a book uh, in 19, 1997. Uh, and the title of it was uh, The Life You Have Always Wanted. Uh, he wrote another book that was a really interesting read. Uh, if you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. That's, that's a great book. If you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. But The Life You've Always Wanted, in The Life You've Always Wanted, this is what he said. Hurry is the great enemy. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. He goes on to say in this chapter that our society suffers from hurry sickness. We suffer from hurry sickness. And the reason why hurrying is so dangerous because hurry and love are not compatible. Love always takes time. And time is one thing that hurried people don't have. Love takes time. And the one thing people in a hurry don't have is time. 
Won't you be my neighbor? Teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Here's a prayer I've been praying. God, give me the courage and desire to make time to take the next step with those who live closest to me. Would you bow your heads with me? Teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, that we may have a right 